listening to audio from Emmanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to EmmanuelBirmingham.com. Good morning. I'll be reading 1 Samuel chapter 8. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you're old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they've not rejected you, but they've rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so that they are also... so then, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the way of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, You will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them to the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. This is the word of the Lord. Um, It's good to see you. I know there are a lot of people out on spring break this week, but... We're losers and we're here, so um, it's good to see you. Uh, 
Two weeks from Easter Sunday, which is kind of hard to believe that it's here uh, upon us again. A few housekeeping things, just real quick before we jump into the sermon, um, just to make you aware of one, we'll have a Good Friday service, April 7th, 6 o'clock in here. Everyone's welcome to come. We'll have child care for preschoolers, um, all that good stuff. So in here, 6 o'clock, April 7th, Good Friday. Um, two, on Easter Sunday, there will be no 915 equip class. Um, so if you attend the equip class at 915, it will not happen on Easter Sunday because, three, um, just like we did last year, we're going to have a, an Easter church-wide brunch before the service. So um, we are asking you all to sign up to bring something, and I hope you will because many of you are very talented uh, when it comes to making things, and I get hungry, and so I want to eat. Um, so you'll, uh, there should be sign-up sheets going around right now in your GCs and your gospel communities, but also you can find that online or even in the newsletter each week that we send out. Um, but we're going to do that again this year because it's just Resurrection Sunday. Like, we should be eating together and feasting together uh, because of what Christ has done. And so we're going to do that as a church. Upstairs, where Equip usually meets, we'll meet up there, pack the room out, probably have to fill other spaces as well, but um, that's coming up. So... Encourage you to be a part of that, be praying for Easter and Holy Week as they approach us. Um, but this morning, we are continuing our study of 1 Samuel. Next Sunday, Palm Sunday, Dustin Ratcliffe from Iron City Church will be here to preach uh, next week as I'll be heading back from Boston with our mission team. Um, he's going to do great, and I'm jealous of the text he gets to preach, but that's okay. Um, but this morning is another example of just how fickle and forgetful our minds can be in this life. You know, all of chapter 7, Samuel, if you were with us last week, is calling the nation back to the Lord. And the nation of Israel, they respond with a time of lament and repenting before the Lord and coming back to him. And if lament is something that you want to continue to walk through, by the way, I know we talked, it was last week, it was a heavy week, if you were here that's something you want to continue to process and talk through, please come find me. Let's talk through some of those things. I'd love to come alongside you as you do that. If you missed last week, I encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon. But here in chapter 8, Samuel is advanced in age, and the people come demanding a king to be like the other nations. Up to this point in the history of Israel, God has been the king of Israel, and now the people come and demand a king like everyone else. They've forgotten once again from chapter 7 to chapter 8 their unique identity as the holy people of God. It only took a few years and one chapter in our Bibles. I mean, I look at my own life this last week, uh, and I notice these forgetful tendencies tend to pop up in my own life. You know, I used to rail a lot on Israel and how quickly they'd forget until I got older and realized I'm the same way. I forget just as quickly, if not quicker, than them. In this last week, uh, Friday morning, Christine's taking the kids to school. I'm waiting for a repairman to come and look at our pipes for the third time this week. Uh, and I'm having this pity party for myself uh, in the den by myself. Nobody's shown up yet. I'm talking out loud to the Lord, just, just griping and complaining and forgetting all the promises that he's made to take care of my family, take care of me. Uh, all the promises he's made to provide for us, on and on. And literally that morning, I'd been in Psalm 18, which is a psalm about God being our rock and our fortress and our deliverer. And it took two hours for me to forget. Two hours. So I 
forget often, and I would imagine you forget often as well. It usually doesn't take us years. It can take us just a couple hours to forget who we are and all the promises God has made to us. But Israel's here again, forgetting that God is their king and requesting an earthly king. And verses 1 through 3 kind of give us the context here, that request. I'm going to read it for us again. So verses 1 through 3 of chapter 8. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes, and they perverted justice. So time has passed. Samuel's aged a bit since chapter 7. Not sure how many years have passed by at this time. People have guesses, but I don't think they can land anywhere. But it's enough years to notice that there's been a change in circumstances in Israel. And we're introduced to Samuel's sons here for the first time in the book. Joel and Abijah, next in line to be judges of Israel after their father. Now, if we were to read the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, we would see in Deuteronomy that the Lord had commanded his people to appoint judges in secession. That as judges come, appoint new judges before the next judge dies so that those can fill in the gap and administer justice in the nation of Israel. But just like Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas from chapters 2 and 3 and 4, they were priests. They were supposed to be models for holiness to the people, but they were corrupt and unholy. And the same thing's happening here with Samuel's sons. These two men who were in a position to primarily mete out justice to the nation are explicitly said to be unjust. They're not capable of filling the roles they are set up to be in. You obviously can't have judges taking bribes and perverting justice. Even in our country, if somebody's taking bribes that sit on the bench of our country and judge this country, we want them off the bench, right? We want our judges to be just. Things have not changed since 1 Samuel chapter 8. History shows us it doesn't work too well when we have unjust men and women serving, leading out, when their primary task is to administer justice. But whether Samuel knew about his son's indiscretions at this point, it's not told to us. But the fact that the Lord doesn't call Samuel out like he did Eli in chapter 2 and 3, chapters 2 and 3, we can infer and imply that even though Samuel's sons were corrupt, that Samuel himself continued to be just and righteous and fair. It goes to show you that even the best, godliest parents You know, parents who seek to raise their children in the love and the fear of the Lord can still have their kids walk away from the Lord. You know, this chapter is not about parenting, but I do want to encourage parents for just a few moments. Your call as parents is to lead your children to the well of Jesus Christ, to be faithful in holding out the gospel to your kids showing them how much God loves them in Christ, but you can't make them drink from that well. It's not within your power to save your kids. God has called you to be faithful in teaching and training up your children in the word of the Lord. But at the end of the day, it's his prerogative to save. And so we teach our kids and we pray for our kids and we hold out the gospel and the love of Christ to our children. And after doing these things, 
through doing these things and being faithful in those things, we don't hold the guilt if our kids walk away, even as painful as that may be. So Samuel's two sons, they're appointed judges in Israel, and they don't love justice, which is a problem. So in verses 4 through 9, the elders of Israel, representing the nation of Israel, they come to Samuel and they request a king. Really, I guess the language would be more, they demand a king. It's not really a request, it's more of a demand. Give us a king. So let's read verses 4 through 9 again. Let's see kind of their requests that they made. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, which is his house, and said to him, Behold, you're old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they've rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds they've done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they also are doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So let's think about this demand for just a moment. You know, on the surface, it looks like a pretty noble demand, right? They initially root their ask in piety. Hey, Samuel, the reason we're here is because your sons are about to be judges after you, and they're not just and righteous and holy and good like you are. They don't walk in your ways, Samuel. So we want someone who is righteous leading us. I mean, that sounds pretty good, right, on the surface. And in addition to this, they actually do have the Torah on their side. Deuteronomy chapter 17, God actually makes an allowance for Israel to have a king. I mean, why don't you, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and flip to Deuteronomy 17. It'll be on the screen for you if you don't have a Bible. I encourage you to bring your Bibles if you do have a Bible. We're going to read verses 14 through 20 together. It kind of gives us some context to this request they make here. But Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 20. It's a little lengthy, but I think it's worth the read. Starting in verse 14. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us, be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who's not an Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you're not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. Verse 18. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he's to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the Levitical priests. It's to be with him. and He's to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and the decrees, and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites, and turn from the law to the right or to the left, then he and his descendants will reign a long time over the kingdom of Israel. So if the people ever come and request a king, here's what the king must possess. He must be one of you. 
He must not rely on the strength of other nations for military support and might. That's the horses from Egypt reference there. He must not acquire many wives. He must not acquire wealth for himself. But then most importantly, he must be a student of and dependent upon the word of the Lord, the law of God, obeying the Lord in all things, not turning to the right or to the left. In other words, what Israel needed and what we need in a king. First point of our sermon this morning is we need a king unlike the other nations. We need a king unlike the other nations. And that was the problem with the request of the elders of Israel. They may have appeared noble at first glance, desiring just men to lead them rather than corrupt men. But when they state that they desire a king like the other nations, and also when the Lord explicitly states in verse 7 that their request is them rejecting him as their king, what they really wanted was a worldly ruler that possessed the qualities of the kings of the surrounding nations. They wanted a visible king rather than an invisible one who dwells in the heavenly places. A king measured by the criteria of the world rather than the criteria God approves of. And it wasn't that God would not eventually appoint them a king. Look at Jesus. It wasn't that they deemed their request on the surface as ungodly or unreasonable. I mean, he was the one that made provisions for a king in Deuteronomy chapter 17. But the issue was their heart behind the request. And the failure to await the king God himself would appoint in his own time. You know, it's not a far stretch to find comparisons in our own desires for worldly rulers and Israel's desires for an earthly ruler here. And I think our desires for worldly leaders are really exposed in two areas of our lives as believers. One, obviously, is the arena of politics. I think, many, I think many shortcomings in our hearts are exposed every four years when we elect a new president. What's exposed is where we place our trust. What's exposed is our corrupt speech, how we talk to one another, how we type with our fingers behind an anonymous computer screen or phone. What's exposed is our idolatry and whom we place our hope. As we tend to put more hope in these political leaders to fix our issues more than Christ, you know, our personal allegiances get exposed. I mean, we would rather compromise the tenets of our faith than the tenets of the Democratic or Republican parties. We share the gospel of donkeys and elephants every four years far more than we share the gospel of Jesus. And how we act and talk and respond in political banter and debate, we declare with those actions and words, give us a king like the other nations. We forget we already have a king. And his kingdom transcends any earthly kingdom we may find ourselves residing in. Now, is it good to be an informed citizen? Is it good to seek out and appoint the best men and women to lead and public office in this country for the good of the people of this country? Of course it is. But let us not make the mistake of thinking these things are ultimate. 
or talk like these things are ultimate and the solutions to all our problems are just, are just a, an election away. No elected leader can fix the human heart. Only Jesus Christ can do that. Within the second arena, our desires for worldly rulers are exposed is the church. I mean, how often does the criteria for calling pastors to churches reflect the values of success in this world? We want someone charismatic and strong and bold and a natural-born leader, someone who functions more like a CEO to grow our company than a shepherd to lead our people. And the type of leader Jesus was when he was on earth most likely would be rejected as pastor candidates in many churches today. The type of leader who invests in a few and says provocative things that scare away the many, that's not an attractive church growth model. Now Israel needed and we need a king unlike the other nations. And there in verses four through nine, there's two qualities of this king that that really jump off the page. The first one is we need a king who loves justice. A king who loves justice. Not a king who turns aside after gain, not a king who takes bribes and perverts justice, but a king to judge us with equity. A king who measures, whose measurements are always fair and always right and always true, that are not arbitrary but fixed. You know, justice is hardwired into the human heart. For God made us, and he's a God of justice, and we're made in his image. We desire to see wrongs righted. We desire to see the trampled upon and oppressed, liberated, and freed. The people in the world, they put a lot of stock in karma, or they make statements like, life's not fair. Why do they make these statements and believe these things? Because there's a longing in our souls for equity, Right? And yet time and time again, we put our hope in worldly leaders, men and women, to be arbiters of this justice, to right the wrongs experienced in this world, only to be let down time and time again. And what's the definition of insanity? Like doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results? Like, what are we going to learn? What are we going to learn? Now we need a king who not only loves justice, but has a sense of what true justice is and the power to carry it out. And the way this king we need knows what true justice is, is the second trait of a king unlike the nations, is we need a king who hears from the Lord. A king who hears from the Lord, because the Lord is the definer of justice. You know, Samuel's not a king, Yet he possesses a, a vital trait the kings of God would, uh, the kings that God would appoint would need to have an ear to hear the voice of the Lord. Now, Samuel, throughout his life, he heard and he delivered messages he received from God to the people. He's always leading the people into truth. Now, going back to Deuteronomy 17, one of the reasons the the king would need to be a student of the law of the Lord, was to be an example to the people he leads in listening and obeying the voice of God. And I remember back in 2015, 2016, having a conversation with some older men at the church I was previously at about that upcoming political election. 
We're not going to talk about it. But upcoming election, right? Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump. And they're going back and forth. And by God's grace, it was very civil. We're going back and forth, right? It's having this conversation about who would be the best fit, et cetera, et cetera. And there's one point I made in the conversation that, that really still, I'm not proud of myself, but I'm glad I made the point. Um, it's very difficult in the scriptures to find a place where the people did not become like the kings that ruled them. It's more than just an election. It's who do we want to be? Good kings tend to drive people towards the Lord. Wicked kings tend to push them into idolatry in the Bible. And the people tended to value and reflect those things the king tended to value and reflect. The same is true today. You know, we tend to become like the leaders we follow. Our nation reflects that. Our churches reflect that as well. Do those in leadership, I'm asking you, do those in leadership here at this church, myself and the elders, do we push you towards loving Jesus, following Jesus? Do we do that? I mean, do we care for you in a way that makes you want more of Christ? Do you leave conversations with us wanting more of him or less of him? We don't need more charismatic leaders in the church. We need leaders who value hearing from God's word and leading people into the truth. It's your responsibility, Emmanuel Church, to assess us, to assess us according to the word. Our leaders need to be consistently hearing from the Lord, valuing that and leading you to value it as well. Does the aroma of Christ come off of us as leaders? If not, please have a conversation with us. Please. So not only do we need a king who's unlike the nations, but second, we need a king who gives rather than takes. A king who gives rather than takes. Read again with me verses 10 through 18. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots, to be his horsemen, to run before his chariots. He'll appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He'll take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He'll take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He'll take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He'll take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He'll take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you. In that day, we notice the language here. This word take shows up six times. The word his, the pronoun his, you know, his armies, his flocks, etc., etc. It's used 11 times. The kings that would rule and reign over Israel would be in large part takers, it would be oppressive. They'd use the people to further their own agendas and their own political and individual interests and goals. 
And the amount of resources, going through these verses, the amount of resources these kings would take is staggering. I mean, not only material resources, living the, lining the wealth of the king's pockets, but human resources. I mean, literal men and women to build his armies and provide him comforts and to work his kitchens and to plow his fields. And the ultimate price that would be paid is there in verse 17, that the people under these kings would ultimately lose their freedom. They would once again become slaves. I mean, verses 17 and 18, they're an allusion to Exodus chapter 2. Right before the exodus from Egypt, before God sends Moses and Aaron in to work these plagues and deliver the people, the people of Israel in Exodus chapter 2, they cry out to God in the midst of their slavery, and the Lord hears their cries and remembers his promises. But here, the God who once delivered them from slavery in Egypt, when they cry out to him here, he would allow the prayers of his people who've rejected him as king, he'd allow their prayers to go unanswered for a time when they cried out to him for deliverance. Worldly kings demand a high price from the people. They aren't willing to pay that price themselves. But they take what they will from the hands of their subjects. And I'm not just talking about high taxes, right? Taxes are taxes. What I'm talking about is worldly leaders in countries and churches tend to use their people for their own gain. Elected officials who make grand promises to people, who put them in office only to go back on those promises and abuse the trust that these people once gave them to advance their own careers. Pastors who begin ministry at smaller churches to abandon these smaller churches for bigger, better, brighter jobs come along to pad their own stats, gain more reward, more prestige, more influence. They take and they take and they take until they've exhausted all the resources in one place only to leave that place devastated and go to the next place to take and to take and to take. I ask you to pray for me, church, to pray for our elders. Pray for anyone who's ever in a leadership position here. Pray that we don't fall into the temptation that the church is created to serve us, to serve our means and our agendas. But rather pray that we remember that we were brought here and appointed to these roles to serve you. God did not bring me here to pad my stats and further my career and build my brand, only to leave you at one point, when I feel like I can step out and gain something bigger and better and brighter. God brought me here to be your pastor and remind you of the gospel. To lay down my life for you on a daily basis in order to lead you to Christ. Who laid down his life for you to redeem you. Just as he did for me. Being your pastor is not about furthering myself. It's about emptying myself for the sake of you and your well-being. So pray for me. Pray for our elders here. We need your prayers. It gets hard sometimes. 
it's really difficult sometimes, the work of pastoral ministry, but pray that the Lord continues to fill us up, that we may continue to empty ourselves for your sake, for the sake of the gospel. And then third, we need a king who will fight our battles. We need a king who will fight our battles. Verses 19 through 22. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. Samuel delivers this warning of the way of kings to come. And the people scoff at his warning and continue to demand their king. And they listed three things here they desire for this king to do. Judge us, go out before us, fight our battles. You know, it's amazing, once again, how quickly humans forget. I mean, literally chapter 7 The chapter right before this, the Lord goes out before Israel and fights for them, throwing the Philistines into confusion where then the armies of Israel come and overtake them and win the battle. I mean, their demands are literally what Yahweh, their king, is already doing for them. But again, they want a king they can see, a king like all the other nations, and the Lord allows it. Obey their voice. That's very close to this idea the Apostle Paul puts forward in Romans chapter 1 of giving people over to their own sin. You really want that? You really desire that? You want to choose that? And by all means, have at it. God is giving them over to the desires of their hearts. And it could not be more devastating for them in the long run. We need a king, unlike the other nations, a king who gives rather than takes, a king who will fight our battles. You know, after centuries of kings in Israel who brought devastation on the land, centuries of kings who brought oppression and pain on the people, Kings who led Israel away from the Lord and towards other false gods that eventually led them into exile. God did send his king in Jesus. His king would be the remedy to all our needs for salvation and deliverance, fulfill all of God's desires for us. Jesus would be a king unlike the other nations, for he would ransom people from every nation. Rather than his ruling over a limited number of countries and territories, his domain would be the entire earth. He would not come wielding a sword, a head taller than every other person in the country, but he would not come as a valiant rider on a huge horse with huge armies by his side. Jesus wouldn't come with splendor and majesty, born in castles of power with nobility and wealth and riches. His methods of rule and reign wouldn't be like the other nations at all. He would come in meekness and gentleness and kindness. He wouldn't seek to oppress by force to gain subjects and followers, but he would 
gently draw them to himself with his compassion and his love. Jesus would not come to take from us, but rather his mission in coming was to give. Now, rather than coming to take everything by force, he willingly gave everything he had to the very last drop of blood. To serve us, he gave up of himself. Rather than steal men and women from their homes to build his wealth and his resources, he came to lay down his life for his people as they willingly came to enjoy his kingdom and flourish within it. And Jesus ultimately came to go before us into battle against the kingdom of darkness. You know, in laying down his life, he defeated for us the greatest enemy, the devil and sin and death. That was a battle we could not win. We had no hopes of winning that battle. We had tried over and over and over through our good works and tried over and over and over through our piety and through our sacrifices, and we could not do it. But Jesus came and he won this battle that had been going on since Genesis chapter 3. And he goes before us into that war, overthrowing the kingdom of darkness and establishing his kingdom that would never fail, would never fade, or be overrun. And rather than disappear into his castle, once the battle has been won, he promises to come back again for his people to return and finally rescue his people from all this devastation we find around us. You know, God once heard the cries of his people for deliverance and he sent Moses. He heard their cries again and he sent Jesus. And one day in a final act of grace and judgment, he'll hear our, he'll hear our cries once again and send Jesus back again. God will give us a king to judge us in that last day. King of justice unlike any of the other nations. And for that king, we watch and we wait and we pray. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for... not giving us up to our own desires. But curbing our unholy desires for the things that further us to the things that further your kingdom and your glory and your name and your renown. We thank you for giving us a king in Christ. A king that came from your hand whom you appointed A king to be all things that worldly and earthly kings could not be. To fight the battles they could not win. To give what they could not give. And we thank you, Lord, that our king now, he reigns in the heavenly places and he will one day come back to earth to set up a kingdom here. And that kingdom will be full of of men and women and boys and girls from every tribe and tongue and nation and people. No longer will we have borders around countries. No longer will we have armies that fight one another. But our king will reign supreme on his throne. 
never, never again to let us fall into the hands of any enemy. Thank you, Lord, for Christ. Thank you, Lord, for hearing our cries and remembering us even when we forget you. In Christ's name, amen.